Welcome to Deviate to Win, a podcast featuring business leaders who've won by going in a different direction from everybody else, with your host, Jason Ader. This podcast is meant to be used for informational purposes only and not investment advice. Hosts and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed. All opinions on Deviate to Win are the opinions of the host and guest and do not represent those of Spring Owl Asset Management. Well, Rob, terrific to chat with you. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, you know, let me start by asking, just tell me a little bit about your background. Like, like, how did you get into the gaming industry? What was your first job? Give, give me a sense as to how you had your first break and some of the key people that influenced you in your career, you know, in, in, in the context of, uh, you know, our, our Deviate to Win podcast. Sure. I got into the business in the most peculiar way. I, it was never my intention ever to be in the gambling but as a kid. It never entered my mind. I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, I, I planned to go to business school or law school, and um, that was my parents' intention. Neither of my parents went to college, so that was their big intention to go to college and uh, professional school. Uh, but my father, who was extraordinarily wonderful father, and I had a great a great upbringing, both my mom and dad. My dad was a small businessman and, and, and had some success. And um, But one of his, uh, the truth, he liked to gamble too much. And he did gamble in sports and, and uh, cards. And, and he loved casinos. He, he, when he made some money, he started going to Las Vegas and had these gambling junkets back in the 60s. They were, you know, 120 men, jackets and ties, you know, right out of Mad Men. They jump on a plane and they leave from New York and they fly to Las Vegas and spend three days of gambling, drinking, playing golf, whatever. And it was, you know, highly indulgent. And my dad really enjoyed it. He'd go a couple of times a year. And at some point he got over his head financially, but he gambled too much and he owed money. And um, I can't tell you the exact how it came to be, but uh, the casino basically said to him, look, you know, you owe us X dollars. And if you want to pay us back a different way, which we would give you credit for gamblers, you must know people like you. And of course, all his friends were like him, they all gambled too much. And um, he started referring customers and, and uh, getting paid for it. And eventually took on the business himself. He actually organized his own junkets by, I guess it was the early 70s. I mean, 70, 71. Uh, he started organizing full planes of gamblers from Philadelphia, New Jersey, uh, and Delaware into Las Vegas and and in um, the Caribbean, and he became his own um, junket organizer, if you will. My, I was a young kid; I was 15, 16 years old. I helped my dad. I liked being with my father; he was my idol. He was just a wonderful father, and I enjoyed being with him. I would help him do the manifest of planes. I'd help him get the casino credit. I'd be on the phones at casinos. I'd go through the rooming lists and very, you know, office mundane things, but it was very helpful. My dad, there was no office staff. It was me and him. And, um, so I kind of got a foothold in something I didn't really understand, but, uh, I learned. And, um, when my dad smoked a lot of cigarettes and he got ill, had numerous heart attacks, a couple of them. And whenever he got sick, I would actually go to Las Vegas and, and help put the ring, the, the group here and check them in and, uh, perhaps I shouldn't have done that. I wasn't even 20 years old, but I did it. And then when I was in law school in 1978, my dad passed away. He had a heart attack and he never recovered. And, and my family was not in great shape financially. It was pretty rough. And, uh, I decided to try to take on the business. So I went to Las Vegas, introduced myself to people who they kind of knew who I was, but I was the kid helping my dad. And I had to sit there in front of them and say, I need to work. I need to make money. And would you let me try this? And they were very nice to me. They said, sure. Hey, if you can do it, you know, you do it. 
And uh, I started running my own junkets. It was a bizarre existence. Probably the only kid in law school who was running gambling junkets for the side. And took a lot of time off from school. And uh, when I graduated in 1980, um, uh, I had to make a decision as you know, take a job as a lawyer, making you know not a lot of money, or keep running gambling junkets, which were very lucrative for a, for a young kid and helping. I support my family. My mother and sisters didn't work, and and so I opted for. Uh, Keeping going, never expecting it to be more than just a couple of years, get some more cash and, and get go, go become a lawyer. But it, I had a strange phone call one day in Las Vegas. I was sitting by the pool reading a law book, studying for the bar exam, and Neil Smythe contacted me. And Neil was the, I think he was the CFO, or he, he had a top job at Caesars Palace. He called me in, which was shocking to me because I was shocked he knew who I was. And he was shocked how young I was. And, and, uh, um, I look like a kid because I was a kid, and he, I explained my where I was at in life. And he said, "I thought you were an older guy, and we got we got information you could help us with." Uh, I'm going to take over. He said the Sands in Las Vegas and the Brighton Casino was to be renamed and remarketed as the as the um, Sands uh, in Atlantic City. They were looking for marketing help in Philadelphia, New Jersey, all the places I operated. And he said, "You want to meet some people?" and and I explained to him my reluctance. I said, I don't see myself in this business. I told him I was concerned about the element and people. And he started laughing. He said, have you heard of Michael Milken? I said, no. He explained he was a finance person, Wall Street, a highly intelligent, sophisticated investor. He was going to fund Steve Wynn in Atlantic City. And I listened. And I said, so what's this have to do with me? He said, well, he's going to change the industry. There's, there's soon going to be license requirements in New Jersey and probably in Las Vegas that will re it'll shift the fabric and the makeup of this industry and people who have uh, backgrounds, unsavory backgrounds won't be in the business. And he said, Rob, for you as a 23 year old kid with a law degree, it's perfect. I mean, the future is, you know, that you're the kind of guy they want. And I, I was confused by it, but I went back to my hotel and thought about it. And I went down to Atlantic City and met, um, he gave me Bill Widener's phone number. I called Bill. I met Brad Stone and Steve Hyde. And these guys were impeccable. They were well-dressed, well-mannered, articulate, educated people, refined people. And they were great guys. They were fun to be around. And I was, the first time I got pinched myself and I met people that I thought were worth, you know, exploring as as a career. I thought, maybe I'm missing something here. And they, they talked you know, talked about numbers and money and it, it paused, it made me stop and think about which, what direction I would take. And I, um, you know, Bill offered me a job, I think a week later and, uh, I did it. I went to work for them in first in Philadelphia and then moved down to Atlantic city. And that was 40 plus years ago. And they were wonderful mentors, friends, and, and eventually Bill and Brad and I, of course, moved to Nevada together, but I was very fortunate to, to have that opportunity and it was fortuitous because I never would have gotten there without that, that introduction to Neil and that approach. I would have probably, you know, be practicing law someday in Philadelphia or New Jersey or something. And uh, instead I ended up in Las Vegas and at Las Vegas Sands. And I was very fortunate. It was a great uh, time in my life. So, so Rob, let's, let's talk about like your relationship with really one of the greatest business leaders ever. You've had some amazing experiences with Sheldon Adelson and he really, wrote the book on business success, I think, for both of us. We'd love to hear your perspective on some of his philosophies that uh, influence you as a business leader today and and just some examples that, you know, just, just about how Sheldon epitomized the philosophy of, of winning, you know, from CES to buying the sands to the Venetian. Yeah. Uh, Jason, as you know, I think the title of your book actually could be the title of Sheldon's uh, 
biography because he really always did believe in in deviation and and the idea of looking at industries with a with an unprejudiced eye. He he always laughed. He didn't have the um, the burden of having gone to business school, and he believed he looked at things with a fresh uh, and kind of a, a almost a naivety. He always questioned why it had to be that way or this way. Um, the stories are endless, as you probably know. After I was with him. Sheldon passed away not too long ago, but I spent the better part of, you know, of 25 years, uh, talked to him pretty much every day for 25 years. We were neighbors and he was not just a mentor. He was a spectacular friend and a, and a, a real example of how people should run an industry. It was complete transparency, honesty, very direct. Now, he didn't suffer fools well. Uh, and, but the one thing I always took away from Sheldon was this extraordinary confidence he had and projected. And I, I, I think we've talked about this previously, that uh, one of my favorite Sheldon stories was when we did the mall here in Las Vegas back in the late 90s. We built this second floor mall uh, retail, about 100 stores on top of the casino floor adjacent to the, uh, you know, the towers above and adjacent to the parking lot. And we thought it was a pretty good plan because we thought it took real estate and made it work harder. It took a second floor uh, area that didn't have as much value for the casino and and force people you know up the second floor to spend their money shopping eating entertainment and we were very pleased with it but we wanted to you know to stress test it with some very smart people in the real estate world and we brought in uh, some incredibly smart guys sheldon gordon and, and um mel simon and some other guys came in i will never forget the meeting it was you know with, we were all in the room brad myself bill Sheldon, uh, Sheldon Gordon, uh, I think Mel Simon was there. I'm pretty sure he was there. Anyway, it, it, the meeting went horribly badly. It was, it was a horrible meeting and that these guys were convinced that Shell was totally wrong. Our concept was wrong. It would utterly be a disaster. And they told Sheldon, you can't do this. And we were hoping he'd bring them in in some form, equity or help us sell the thing. And, but it, it was, it, the meeting couldn't have gone worse. And they they basically criticized every aspect of from the layout to the second floor to the access and um, he, they left the room and these were the these were the guys who created the forum shops these were you know the Simons had done amazing things in the retail world for decades and it was very disheartening from my perspective and I thought okay we're have to rethink this and they left and Sheldon didn't say a word he kept going he went to uh, he was eating lunch and he was just talking the phone and I thought I said Sheldon what do you want to do about it? how do we want to handle this how do we want to address this issue how do we want to think about on a go forward he said well what are you talking about and I said well you know these guys are really they did the forum they've done hundreds of months and, and think their their negative attitude bothered all of us Bill was very concerned Brad myself and he just started laughing he said I don't really care what they think they, they were just wrong um, they had no idea what they're talking about. Uh, I've done, I've been in lots of businesses, and I'm totally convinced people go to the second floor, and they're just wrong. They live in another world, and, they're, and they live in the world of, you know, you have to have an anchor and you have to have a ground floor space. And he said, just forget those guys. He said, I'm glad they left because I don't worry about them now. And he went back to eating, and we were all rattled by it, except him. And of course, in retrospect, he was he was 110% right. We were completely wrong to be worried. The mall was an enormous success. We sold it for a you know, billion and a half dollars later on. And, and <laughs> my point was, this guy never had a problem facing adversarial perspectives, nor even though the people may have been from that industry, he never blinked. He never worried. Uh, he was a wonderfully confident man with a strategic perspective that served him very well. 
And I can repeat a dozen stories like that where he never had an issue. We, we sold the coffee shop to an outside source. We sold the steakhouse and got calls from people in the industry saying, you can't do that in Las Vegas. You must own your coffee shop. You must own this. We did mini bars at a time when there were no mini bars in Las Vegas. And Sheldon was hilarious that the industry had this crazy idea that mini bars would be, you know, the casino customers would take the, the, the products from the mini bars, not pay for them. And he just thought the whole thing was upside down. He said, and he, probably the best thing about Sheldon was his confidence, his strategic perspective, and his willingness to, to believe in you as a person. He believed in, in us in a way that uh, I think we were just thrilled to be around a guy that had such great vision and insight and, and gave us complete autonomy to build the building, run the building. And it was a, he was a delight for us. He Was he easy? No. Was he demanding? Yes. Did he work you very hard? Yeah. But you're much better for it. And that was Sheldon in a nutshell. He was, I believe, personally, your title should be his, his biography's title. He, he believed in deviate to win. When you mentioned that to me, really so much of what I learned you know, about business was through knowing Sheldon. And, and what, it is amazing how the more people told him he was wrong, the more he dug in. And he was, he really was always right at, in the end. I never saw one instance where he wasn't. I do remember, I, I don't, I, we've had talked about this, Jason. I'm, I don't know if you remember it, but we were going, contemplating on public. Uh, David Salmon was doing the, uh, the deal with Goldman and, and you were running your fund. And I remember you calling us up and offering, I forget the numbers exactly, but you offered to buy, I think, 10% of the company. And it was, it was really funny. We, we hung up the phone. We all knew you well and your reputation was uh, ex- exemplary. And we told Sheldon, he was delighted. He says, he goes, if Jason Ader believes in the company, we're going to be really successful. He was really, uh, he believed in people. He believed in, in intelligence. He believed in honesty. But underlying all of it was this supreme uh, confidence that never wavered, even in the face of facts that most people would have run for the hills and said, we handled this improperly. He was really an enigma. Because uh, conventional wisdom didn't interest Sheldon. Interest Sheldon. He, he believed in uh, his own uh, sense of things. And he was convinced Las Vegas completely misunderstood the trade show business, un- misunderstood the role of midweek occupancy. He, he was uh, the things that come out of his mouth. I just couldn't believe he. He talked about at some point making a couple hundred million dollars in in food and beverage of banquets. We thought that was out crazy. And when it actually happened, we realized he, he wasn't crazy at all. He just saw things differently. I, he never entered a conversation about bringing value. But at the core of his thinking was, don't let the common wisdom get in your way. You know, stick with what you know, stick what you believe in, and you'll, and you'll prosper and have strategic thinking. So talk a little bit about how you continue that legacy. I mean, you're leading the company right now, and there's a lot for me. And this, we're in a pandemic got issues you know with in las vegas and travel and tourism in general with you know in asia there's a lot of pressure to go online i mean you know how do you how do you continue to innovate and differentiate and follow the spirit of of the founder of of las vegas sense well as you well know pre-covid this company was a five billion dollar ebitda annual coming out of uh, our properties in asia it was extraordinary uh, EBITDA creation and and it was their businesses that had moats around them. I mean, the, the, the business in Singapore and Macau are somewhat protected. It's, it's very difficult to enter. Um, I think we have to be patient uh, and wait for a better day, and that day is coming. I, what I can't tell you is when that day is coming, but that day is coming. So I think we'll re, we'll get back to running our land-based business. As you know, we sold Las Vegas. We sold it because we believe not that Las Vegas doesn't have a bright future. It certainly does have a bright future, but with the capital that comes out of that sale, we can do some 
new things in land-based, but also digital. And I think what people these days have a tendency to say, well, is it land-based or are you digital? We're going to be in both businesses. And I think our, our land-based business, obviously, is hard to create a $5 billion a year EBITDA. You know, it's a, these are extraordinary numbers. And uh, I don't think anybody in the digital world at this point has any come anywhere near those numbers. We believe there's more out there. We believe there's markets that are coming online for digital. I should say land-based markets such as Florida. We think Texas happens. Uh, we think we have bigger opportunities than Macau again. We do believe that Macau will be a growth market once again for us and we'll reinvest in Macau. We like to invest a lot of money in Macau. We're going to invest another uh, chunk of money in Singapore. So our land-based business will continue to evolve and will continue to build great buildings in protected markets that don't have endless uh, supply of new capacity. On the digital front, you can't ignore it. We have at our peril. Um, I think we need to rethink that. We have rethunk. We brought some people into our company. We're evaluating where to be in digital. But as you know, digital is fraught with uh, with issues that you have to be careful of. And I think the word digital sometimes gets confused. Unlike land-based, it's, it's an easier business to penetrate and be in. It's a harder business to make money at. So you look at some of the successes in digital so far, they're just equity valuations. They're not necessarily cash-producing businesses. Our goal is to marry the two. And I think we're being very thoughtful, be it B2B, B2C. Obviously, though, we got to be careful. We can't be in digital in Asia because of um, our, our relationship with Macau and Singapore forbids that. So we'll have to our spots in Europe and North America and the rest of the globe. But I do think people will be surprised that we will be in digital in a way that's thoughtful and I think a way that Sheldon would respect and it would be innovative. And with partners uh, that I think people will be, um, um, it'll be a, a good relationship for all of us. So LVS will be in the land-based business, we'll be in the digital business, we'll be in the growth business again. Unfortunately, you know, you've got to wait and be patient because this is a very challenging time. And, and Asia is more challenging than the U.S., no question about it. Right. Well, the pent-up demand in Asia is just going to be extraordinary. I mean, just based on the early <laughs> recovery numbers out of Las Vegas, you can just imagine, you know, when, when people feel comfortable traveling again. Uh, I mean, it's it's going to be unprecedented in terms of, of leisure travel demand. Our, to your point, our retail sales in Macau, with the visitation being sub-20% of it was in pre-pandemic, Actually, our retail sales and luxury are much higher than they were pre-pandemic. It shows you that very few people who actually can get to Macau are spending more money than ever. Same with premium mass. The spend per customer is terrific. The problem, you know, you've got to get these – the doors have to open to these markets. I think Singapore made some progress again this week, and I think Singapore returns as a strong local market this quarter. Macau, again, uncertainty reigns in Macau at this point. Well, I can't wait to go back uh, to, to, to Asia and, and, and specifically uh, Macau when things open up there. So let, let's stay on the gaming industry and, and, and we'd love to get your perspective, you know, other than your own company. I mean, who do you think is, is, is deviating from the norm to create shareholder value? There's just been some very big and very new companies, you know, that have formed over the last several years. Obviously, DraftKings has been a leader. Uh, we had Bally's on the podcast I and mean, integrating technology and an old brand and casinos and now broadcasting. What's your perspective on, on, on some of the others out there, there that have done noteworthy things? There's a handful of people I've gotten to know pretty well in, in both the new world, I'll call it the, the new generation and then the old generation. And I, I got just to revert back for a second to my world, which was land-based. I, I enjoy watching what the Pratidors are doing here in Las Vegas with, with Red Rock. They've proven that smart people that stay focused can take a pandemic and turn it to advantage. The, the numbers out of these casinos at Red Rock, I think the numbers were double EBITDA, uh, 
Q1, I think I read that, or Q2 this year versus pre-pandemic. So hats off to those guys. Tillman Fertitta, and he's on a gold nugget. I'm a big fan of his work. And I think Derek Stevens, uh, the guy behind Circa, I mean, you've been downtown to Circa, but it's <laughs> it's a force of nature down there. The, the pool and the sports book is fun. And then the team at El Dorado Caesars, uh, you got to take your hats off these guys. They've, they've taken that balance sheet and they've figured out a way to make it work for them. And, and they're more of an old school approach. On the new frontier, I mean, you can't look Jason at, at DraftKings, Jason Robbins, Matt King, you know, before he left, uh, you know, uh, Flutter, uh, FanDuel. Uh, I'm, these, these guys think differently. They're fun to know and listen to. They've opened the, the doors to a new world. And, you know, I think you have to take your hat off to them. Can, how they get there on value creation remains to be seen, how they can navigate that. Michael Rubin uh, from Fanatics just teamed up with, uh, with, with Matt King, and that'd be a fun combination to watch because both those guys in their own respective worlds have done some pretty terrific things. So digital is fascinating, but still at the early stages. And I think it's just beginning. And the, the path of profitability for these guys is going to be the issue. And I think they're all going to get there, or some are going to get there. I shouldn't say all. But some are going to get there, some are not. And I think the thing that digital is so fascinating, although it, it's so enticing and the barriers to entry are low, so more and more companies pour into it. What I like about land base still is that land base, you've you got more of a protective you know, a moat around you, and it makes it more income producing. It scares me a bit when I see you know, 37 companies trying to get a gaming license to do sports betting or something. And the promotional dollars are obviously are the issues, these guys. So, but Jason, Matt, you know, Fertitas, Tillman Fertitta, Derek Stevens, you know, the, the Caesars people, Michael Rubin, there's some big leaders in this industry that are going to continue to evolve and, and, and change the world, both digitally and land-based. I think it, the scary part for me is I hear people talk about digital will overtake and land-based won't exist. That's just silly and, and, and not well thought out. There's plenty of room for both because the pie keeps getting larger and larger. The one thing about our industry, Jason, you know, is that it's come a long way from when I started in Atlantic City. The whole market was Atlantic City and, and Las Vegas. Look what's happened between the Indian casinos, land-based casinos, digital gambling, Asia, Europe. Who would have thought 30, 40 years ago how big the pie has gotten? And I think the pie will swell and continue to grow and offer opportunity to all these companies. But not everyone's going to get the finish line. We know that. Yeah, yeah. Look, we just did a market study of a lot of um, 20-year-olds who went to Las Vegas who uh, – couldn't find things that they wanted to spend on as it relates to gaming and, and, and gaming. They had a lot to spend on outside of gaming. So therein lies the challenge for all the land base. How do you get, you know, the, the 20 year olds who want to spend money to play and engage in a casino environment with games that don't look like their parents' games and uh, whoever figures that out is just going to have an amazing path. It's so valid what you're saying in Nevada and the U.S., yet in Asia we see is just the opposite. We see 20 and 30 and 40-year-olds who want lifestyle products like we have in Macau. They want excessive retail. They want top-tier entertainment. They want lifestyle. They want the best chefs and the best food. The same as we're designing our new building in Singapore. We're going to build a really spectacular, one-of-a-kind building. We're coming to the nightclub issues, restaurants, retail. How do you design a building for these people? And the truth is, Asia looks a lot more like what the U.S. used to be. Young gamers still gravitate to Baccarat and, and, and games of you know, Roulette. More traditional. Asia feels, you know, you take a 34-year-old young guy who's made a bunch of money in China. He still wants to play Baccarat, wants to see shows, wants to eat dinner. It's more traditional. 
And our younger, our customer skew is much younger in Asia than than the U.S. I and mean, again, you're right though. In the U.S., the young people, my kids, you know, are not going to gravitate to the games that uh, are playing blackjack or baccarat. Or it's it's different. They look for a different product. So I think the challenge in the U.S. is how do you offer something that's uh, you know, uh, important to those people makes them want to come here. Because you're right, the nightclub crowd that you see in Nevada doesn't necessarily translate to uh, to gaming win. Yeah, yeah. Be interesting to see. How do you think about the innov- innovation outside of the gaming industry? What what cultures do you look at, you know, when you think about building a culture inside of Las Vegas Sands? Obviously, Goldman Sachs has done some ama- amazing things. Tesla yep. is a case study for everybody. Uber. Um, Netflix. Who are the businesses outside of gaming you most admire? Let's start with the guy we know well. What David has done at Goldman is pretty astounding. I mean, the stock is through the roof, and I think David's rethinking that whole. I think he's rebranding, rethinking how Goldman operates. And I'm not privy to those, you know, what goes on inside the tent, but the numbers are sure compelling. And obviously, I think David's created a different culture than was there previously. In, in the other, you, know, you look at what Jeff Bezos in retail and. Obviously, Elon Musk. You have to look at these people and really scratch your head and realize what they created from scratch and the the authenticity they offered. And, and, and what Amazon, I remember for years, very intelligent people didn't believe Amazon had a path, and yet it's proven to be Amazon. It's incredible what they've done. And I think Musk is one of those thinkers and one of those people that you. He's got outsized ego, but he should have outsized ego. He's got matching intellect. And and uh, I think he's one of those guys proven he can do it, and he's done it over and over again in multiple businesses. I, you look at those people, and you have to you have to be hugely admirable. The admiration I have for those people is uh, unparalleled. And I think that you look at those guys, and they they show you a path to building a business. And like Sheldon did, they did it in non traditional ways with a non traditional culture, a very strong work ethic, and a strong belief in what they think they saw. I mean, Bezos saw something that people did not see. You know, Musk sees things every day. It seems like this thing he's done in Las Vegas with the uh, the uh, at the convention center. You have to see what he's done over there and what he could do if he takes it out further. So, uh, the world's changing. You know, the world I grew up in in the '80s, '90s has really evolved to a different place. Yet, I think the fundamentals remain constant. You know, you've got to be look at opportunity. You've got to see it. You've got to seek it, and you've got to go after it. And a lot of people see things, they don't pursue it, but those guys did. Our goal is to seek opportunity in the digital world. Our goal is to keep developing better products in the land-based world. And we don't see a reason we can't have feet in both of those places. You know, we can have feet both in the land-based and the digital world and do very well. So uh, that's the goal of our company. We want to get our land-based business back on track because I think that's essential. But then we also want to get uh, our digital business on track. And they're not exclusive. This idea that you can't be one or the other kind of fascinates me because it seems so simple. So let's talk a little bit about a different topic and, and one that I really got to know well, you know, you know as, a, as a board member of SANS. A lot of people used to think, you know, there wasn't a deep bench there but when i got to know the company i mean there's there's just amazing teams throughout the throughout the business all over the world i mean you really have you know standout executives throughout the company and it'd be great to you know just hear your philosophy about team building and recruiting at, at the company well I, I think we've never had a better team and i can say that this is probably the only per i am the only person who's been here probably since day one uh everyone else has left um but the team has never been strong right I hesitate to go through all the individual people who come on board, but we've never had better strength and diversity throughout the company, uh, be it you know in, in the operations side, casino, hotel side, legal, uh, PR strategy, political. 
we've evolved to a place that I, I'm very proud we've, what we've come to. We've evolved to a place that uh, is much more successful. And the, the bench is deeper and the team is excited. I will tell you, there's a, there's a, it's a tough time for a lot of people. I mean, we're selling, we, what we've gone through here in, the, in Las Vegas, we've sold the company in Venetian plots, which is, for a lot of us, our DNA. And that's hard to accept for some people. We also lost Sheldon, and he's irreplaceable. And we've also gotten beaten up badly in Asia with the, the pandemic. So I won't misportray it. It's a hard time for us, and it takes a lot of uh, soul searching to come through this thing. But we will. And to your to your point, the team is very deep. Uh, we've come a long way from the, the '90s when we couldn't get talent. Truthfully, when we first started, a lot of people did not want to work for us. They felt we were not going to f- be successful. We had a hard time filling out the uh, the the ranks back in the late '90s, getting the Venetian open. People felt we were going to fail. People felt we were just off the the beaten track. And um, you know, I don't think people believed in us. And today, polar opposite. People want to work here. Uh, the culture is very strong. The culture has adapted to, to the businesses. And, and we're also a company that's a lot of business, obviously, in Asia and throughout the world. So people find us compelling. And we, we, we access talent easily. And uh, it's, it's resulted in a company that's stronger than ever. Yeah. yeah. I remember I remember talking to you about uh, Phil Jackson's book, you know, when it when it came out. But, you know, there's there's just amazing teams all over the world. And, uh, you know, it really stands out. And, you know, anybody I know who is looking for opportunities in in the gaming industry, you know, he's right at the top of the list. Oh, I'd like to work at Sands. Can can you introduce me to somebody? So uh, it's 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 amazing to see and, and probably continues to improve over time as as the company grows into new areas. No, no question about it. This company is going to have a very interesting future ahead. As once we get back online in Asia and we complete the sale in Las Vegas, our balance sheet, as you know, is is impeccable, and our appetite to grow is 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 pretty strong. So I think we're going to be we be a land based or be a digital the next five years in this company. Once we again establish a, a, a sound footing in Asia. I think our future has been very strong. We have the balance sheet, we have the people, and we have the appetite. So you put them together, and the future for LVS feels pretty good. So, so let's talk about you know the future. Just back to the core, you know, development integrated resort model. You know, in other markets, wherever they may be. I mean, how do, what does a twenty twenty six integrated resort look like? I mean, how is it different from what you've built in the past? What is, how does how does the younger market actually? get accessed? How does it get, you know, a, you know, double digit, you know, cash on cash return? What, what, what new needs to be added? How does it, how does it maintain relevance given the competition throughout the world? I think it begins with a, a the right partner in terms of government. I think you, it's hard to see the one of these things being built in the U.S. Uh, unless you've got the government that will protect you to some degree from unlimited competition. I mean, one thing that makes Macau and Singapore so compelling, and hopefully maybe someday you know, Korea or, or Thailand, is you've got these governments that respect the fact you're deploying $5 billion in capital. For example, our new building in Singapore is going to be a very expensive building, but we know we're alone there with, with our a duopoly with, uh, you know, with Genting. So when you spend billions of dollars, there, you know you're somewhat, you've got a moat around you to protect you from endless competition. One thing I don't like about Las Vegas, it, it never stops. The competition, the capex here makes it hard to spend. Today, to spend $5 billion, I mean, RWS just did it. To me, it's very challenging without having some, yes, there's low taxes, but there's endless competition. Whereas in Asia, 
Um, and perhaps we could do that in Florida. We're, we're, as you know, we're trying to do something in Florida. We're hoping in Texas. You can't spend that kind of money with having a government that respects how much money it takes to build these buildings. What does it look like? I think it reflects the younger generation. I think last night I was on a call for hours with our Singapore team, and it's funny how much time we're spending on the nightclub, retail, restaurant product um, and, and other experiences, you know, be a, a top golf experience or something uh, akin to that that speaks to lifestyle. The new resorts can't just, well, they can't be slots and tables in a box and ignore um, the lifestyle aspect of people's uh, desires. And I think in Asia, if you look at our new Londoner building or our new Four Seasons building, they are lifestyle resorts. They are built to appeal a certain class of people. It's, it's a high-end customer. It's a high-spend, uh, high-frequent. Uh, but also high touch where they demand great service. They want to come in for four or five days. They want to bring their kids or they want to come with their significant other. They want to spend money in the gambling, but also they want a top tier lodging experience. They want a top tier retail experience. They want a top tier and they're very demanding. It has to have all the components that they want at 32 years old or 42 years old. And it, it can't be second tier. And that's the game we're playing in Asia. We're building top tier lifestyle resorts that appeal to that premium mass guy or gal. And in and, and Asia, by a lot of our customers are female. So that's the future. I don't know in Las Vegas, you can spend that much money to put that much capital and there's just so much competition here uh, that makes it more challenging. And that's true in a lot of places in this country. Um, not that competition is a bad thing. It just makes you pinch yourself about capital deployment and where you can get a double digit return you allude to. And to get that, you've got to have a cooperative partner. Singapore is that partner. Macau has been that partner. I hope maybe somewhere, someday we could do it in Florida, perhaps. And if we ever got Florida to happen, it would be a a spectacular development that would be far beyond people envisioned down there. And that's what we're looking for is those opportunities allow us to deploy that capital, but also get a return that makes shareholders feel comfortable. And, and in terms of content, you know, as you think about that, you know, it's been amazing to see boxing come back, you know, with you know, YouTube influencers now are like, it's like, it's like the old days, you know, there's a great energy around boxing. UFC might be as relevant today as it ever was. Um, you know, obviously now, now, now sort of thinking about Asia, in Korea, esports, you go to an event, it's like going to a Justin Bieber concert. I mean, there's tens of thousands of people. I mean, what, does esports, in your view, have a content relevance, have content relevance in, a, in the next generation of, of, of integrated resorts? I think absolutely. I, I, Bob Adams is a friend of mine for a, a lot of years, and, and Bob and I had this conversation a few months back. You know, it's amazing. Bob's thriving. Um, he's he's doing this for a long time, and he his business is thriving more than ever. You know, the UFC is is a, another great example. Esports. I was actually saw an event in Korea a while back, a couple, three, four years ago. It overwhelmed me to see. I think sports can never be denied the impact, and the importance. The question is, how do you position it? And by the way, does that be live? Can it be? broadcast I mean, what is the what is the role i don't know but i'll tell you one thing that you can't ignore entertainment in any aspect of the future of, of ir they're, they're, they're essential we're about to build a really large arena in singapore for that very reason you need to have you know young entertainers be it bruno mars taylor swift who's ever that the, the hot uh, entertainment but you also have to focus on esports and other forms of entertainment and also very sophisticated events for the high-end clientele expect things be it watch shows jewelry shows fashion shows something you know golf these customers are demanding and it takes a lot of thoughtfulness to build resorts that will appeal to them for years to come and it's a different customer base that you allude to in the u.s than it is in asia it's a different 
demographic and different desire. It's funny how in Asia, they're much more traditional, uh, like their parents. They tend to want to eat in top tier restaurants. They want to gamble in, in, in the casino games. They have to change the games. That's what they want. They want Bakrat and what. But they do want uh, dining, retail. They want to see top tier entertainment. We bring people like Bruno Mars there or uh, Celine Dion. The demand for Western stars is huge, but demand for K-pop and J-pop is huge too. So, you know, Macau, people don't realize how diversified that is in terms of what it offers and how hard it is. The, the, the competition is ferocious. And um, people are, you know, galaxies building arenas. Um, we're going to do it in Singapore. So you've got to stay in touch with your customer, which is the primary concern, I think, for a lot of people building in the U.S. And the U.S., again, the saturation points make it hard to deploy capital in a thoughtful way. Let's, let, let's shift gears a little bit, you know, beyond innovation to the pandemic and post-pandemic. I, you know, in June, I went to my first conference post-pandemic, got to shake hands, give out business cards. I have, I have to say I felt, it felt great. And now I've just had in the fall two conferences, including one in Las Vegas that have just been made virtual. So we seem like the leisure travel numbers have been super encouraging. What, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on business travel? How much of it just remains, you know, online and, and business tra- businesses have gotten kind of used to, you know, virtual contact and, and does it ever, does business travel ever come back to where it was? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I think it does, Jason. I think, as you alluded to, people want that high touch. They want to be back. However, you know, with the variant, the Delta, and we've all gotten rattled by the fact you can still get COVID post-vaccine, people are being more thoughtful about uh, I can tell you the fall in Las Vegas is not going to be as strong as we hoped on the convention trade show side. People are just pulling back. I think does it come back? Yeah, inevitably it does. I mean, people forget about, I mean, people, most people don't even know it was a pandemic 100 years ago and the Spanish flu and wiped out tens of millions of people. I think the number was 50, 60 million worldwide. But we recovered and the roaring 20s happened. I, I subscribe to the theory that people want that experience. People will gravitate to that experience. It will return. What I don't know is when this thing, when does the vaccination policy in the U.S. take over and we compel people to get vaccinated and protect themselves? I think when that day comes, the U.S. is on a faster track than Asia. Unfortunately for me, since most of our, our interests are in Asia, it's slower over there. It's been much more difficult. We're lucky in this country. We've got the vaccine. We've got access. I find it hard to imagine people aren't lining up. You know, these people are not getting vaccinated. It's fascinating because... The risk reward there makes no sense to me. I know people are afraid of vaccines, but you should be afraid of this virus. It's for real. You, know, you, you can read the stories all you want about what's happened. But does does convention and all that come back? Sure it does. I mean, the question is how long does it take? Business travelers in the fall are still going to be just like large-scale concerts. When you go see the Raiders last weekend, they hosted, I don't know, 50,000 people here in Las Vegas, or, or they hosted Garth Brooks last month. 50, I mean, there's no question demand is there when people feel safe again, and they don't feel safe right now because the variant's back with a vengeance. And, and in terms of content, you know, as you think about that, you know, it's been amazing to see boxing come back, you know, with you know, YouTube influencers now are like, it's like, it's like, the old days, you know, there's a great energy around boxing. UFC might be as relevant today as it ever was. Um, you know, obviously now, 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 sort of thinking about Asia, in Korea, esports. You go to an event, it's like going to a Justin Bieber concert. I mean, there's tens of thousands of people. I mean, what, does esports, in your view, have a content relevance? Have content relevance in a in the next generation of of, of integrated resorts? 
Yeah, nobody. I, 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 I mean, my daughter, I have a young daughter in LA. She wants to go see Conscious, but she's afraid. The minute she's safe, she'll be going to Conscious every week, whatever. And I think that's indicative of we all want to go back to human touch. I mean, human interaction is critical. Restaurants will return. I think this idea that the world's going to change forever is wrong. However, it has been 18 months into this thing. We're approaching fall of 21. It started in really the late spring or whatever it was, early, early winter of uh, – of uh, 20, you know, no one had thought that back in, you told me in March, we'd be in a still a pandemic state. I never would have believed you, but I would have been very wrong. And I think we have to accept the fact that it's taking longer, but it's going to get resolved. It's just, we don't know when it gets resolved. I think the post pandemic trade for equities and for our business, live entertainment convention is going to be very, very strong and it's going to happen. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the economy and, and we've got, you know, obviously you know, new administration, um, Signs of inflation everywhere. Very tough to hire. You know, labor shortages just across the whole country. It's hard to get people to go back to work. Um, how, how are you seeing, you know, inflation as a factor and and, and labor shortage as a factor in in your business? It's a struggle. It is a struggle everywhere. Everybody I speak to, whether it, whether it be Las Vegas, Los Angeles, New York, I don't know anybody who, who doesn't need labor who isn't frustrated and struggling with the prospect of not getting labor you know but fast food businesses casinos live entertainment everyone's asking where's the where are the workers where are the people who go back to work and it's a real trauma it's a trauma right now for a lot of them hard here in las vegas it's hard and you know you go out and if you go to a restaurant you, they all complain i don't know where this ends does it happen when the government you know stops giving out money i, I don't know the answer to the question but i can tell you it's a real issue and it's not a simple as far as inflation, I think we all are all concerned, or you know, the, the asset appreciation in all kind, be it collectibles, real estate. Everybody, no matter where you talk to them, I talked to a friend of mine in Kansas City today talking about the crazy appreciation of real estate. But I said, you're not alone. It's happening in Nevada. I mean, I lived in Las Vegas for 25 plus years. The the price appreciation of real estate here is it's for those of us who've been around a long time. It's confusing. I understand Los Angeles and, of course, things are coming back in New York. Florida, of course, is outrageously expensive compared to what it was five years ago. But this is indicative of an environment that I think we're all a bit concerned and not sure how to think about. Is this going to continue? Is inflation rampant? It worries me because I think it affects the people we want to help most, which is the middle class. And the rejuvenation of the middle class, if if this thing is out of control, it's hurtful and not, not a good prospect for the country. But I think it's inevitable that there's going to have to be a day when we have to stop and ask ourselves, is all this money, you can't dump this much money in the economy without having some impact on prices. And you're seeing it right now. I'm, I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to understand it. But I don't think it's helpful if we have if this continues to keep moving this direction. Uh, then you couple with a lack of labor. It's confusing. Uh, the world we're living in today doesn't doesn't you know feel uh, sustainable to me. It feels like something's got to something has to give here. Yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, you're building now. So, I mean, in, in some parts of your business, so, I mean, just parts, you know, alone, I mean, you know, was look, we, we were, I've been looking at, you know, construction prices, cable, concrete, sheetrock. I mean, it's really unbelievable. The Delta from two years ago. Um, I can't get over the prices, the pricing we're being quoted, you know, things we're looking at. I hope it can be. I hope the government can work in sync with industry to figure it out because right now it doesn't feel sustainable. It doesn't feel good to me uh, where things are going. I mean, I don't know. If these real estate prices in Nevada are, you know, it, they, they just don't feel sustainable. Yeah. Well, you're talking about residential real estate, and I guess, and commercial too. I mean, you know, like 
commercial too. It's commercial, commercial too, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you know, people in the commercial real estate business here in Las Vegas and friends of mine in California, they're selling things and they're confused about, you know, they feel like they're getting crazy prices, but then they, they stop and think, well, you know, the, the replacement value is so high. So, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not, again, economists can answer it better than I could, but it feels uncertain and unsustainable to me. Yeah, I mean that's why there, there's a few there's a few closed hotels that hotels now not casinos that are available for below construction costs and they look really interesting to me because construction costs then versus now I mean it's 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 fifty percent higher or more because of because of inflation and so I, I suspect they won't be on the market for for long but uh, those deals are fewer and they're few and far they're few and far between at the, at the moment. At the height of New York's decline, when the pandemic had, you know, basically taken over the city, I mean, the pricing on hotel rooms to, to purchase were insanely low. I think that's all changing quickly now. But I have a friend who's an aggressive uh, uh, buyer of commercial, especially hotels, and he kept calling me saying, "Am I crazy? These prices are so far beyond, you know, whatever I thought I could buy these rooms for. The prices were getting to the point where they were giving them away." And I think. I couldn't help but encourage him enough. I said, someday you'll be vindicated. Now, a very short time later, he's he's looks very smart. So, uh. well, what about in Asia, though? I mean, is, is is there any disconnect in terms of you know pricing in in, in Asia versus what we're seeing in the U.S.? Because you, you, I'm sure you see every deal there. Yeah, not really. I don't think it's as drastic as it is in the U.S. I think the U.S. is more drastic in Asia. I really do think we are seeing drastic pricing as we start to bid out our construction jobs. And we're, we're building right now in London or we're building the four seas. We're building we're, or we're getting ready to build in Singapore. We're not there yet. We're hoping to build there in, in 23 when the labor. But again, labor is a real challenge to there. You can't get people to build right now. So construction, because of access in these countries, is hard. But, you know, raw materials, it doesn't matter where you're at in the world. Raw material prices have, have escalated enormously and painfully. For those of us who want to build, it's it's daunting. You know, it is daunting. Yeah. Everyone says it'll come back to, to Earth, but I'm not comfortable saying when. Don't know how to predict that. Yeah, no, it's going to be uh, it's going to be quite interesting for the Fed when they actually decide it's time to uh, taper and start to see rates move up. It's it's right. never it's never led to a, a healthy environment for the next twelve months that follow. So no, nobody's looking forward to that. No, I'm not. I'm not looking as a, as a person. You know, as an older person, I, I look at this and I tell you, the Fed does not have an enviable job. Uh, they've got a lot of people's uh, attention, and I think it's a very it's a tough balancing act. No question about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sort of taking a conversation away from from business and real estate and inflation. Yeah, I know you like Winston Churchill. What's been on your summer reading list? I have to say, I read the Caesar's Palace Coup uh, this summer. Well, I mean, what a what a story! What a book! I mean, for the whole thing to happen on on, on Julius Caesar's birthday of all things. I mean, uh, it's a must. It's a must read. <laughs> it was that was quite a read. I agree. That was very entertaining, but. Uh, <laughs> what have I read? The things I've been, I'm reading a lot of stuff I always read, but I've always, I'm always reading something about Churchill. The, the, the thing I'd love to recommend is Eric Larson's book, The Splendid and the Vile. It may be one of the best things I've ever read. It's, um, it basically is post-World War II. It's a blend of history and fiction. It's brilliant. This guy Larson, he is brilliant. I've read it twice. Adam Grant's book, Think Again, I think if you haven't seen that, that's a must read. And I've always read anything by James Salter. And unfortunately he's passed away, but Salter's stuff was 
yeah, is as good as it gets. And so is Joan Didion. I mean, they're two of my favorite go-tos. And, and uh, on the on the on the net, everyone's got to have a Netflix show. I think I I'm mesmerized by Peaky Blinders. I, I, can't, I can't I can't stop watching. I've watched it twice, and I just keep waiting for the hopefully it's a new season. But you know, on the, on the reading front, I think uh, it's really great to if you have time to read Larson's book and 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 that Adam Grant book. If you haven't seen it again, it's a very thoughtful, thought provoking book. That I really enjoyed, but I've never read more, and I've never enjoyed it more. It's a uh, inching time to take to slow things down i think one of the benefits of covid is we all get to think a little bit more and be a little more uh, um, introspective and think about your yourself and what's important and i think there's there are there are some uh, silver linings in this ugly covid situation yeah yeah no we've uh, that's a great, great recommendation for netflix we, we've actually been watching ted uh ted lasso on yeah, yeah. apple that's, tv that's 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 terrific he, he is <laughs> he is is uh, that's a great show netflix and 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 uh, prime these guys the amount of content coming out it, it must i was laughing a friend of mine i have a house in california a friend of mine my neighbor said i asked why housing prices are so crazy he said well it's, a, it's the netflix economy you know they're, they're paying people actors and producers and I, I have no idea that's that world but he said creative content is such an is such demand that it's, it's making housing i never thought of that but he said in los angeles half and then it turns out my neighbor is a i asked someone does for a living he's i produce content for netflix yeah yes and so i think that's a whole other economy that is helping california even though people yell about taxes and you know, it's popular to, to uh, badmouth California. The fact is that people want to be there and people are paying to be there. And uh, here in Las Vegas, we've been the beneficiary of a lot of people coming over to live here. But there's still a lot of people in California, I found out. You know, there's a lack of uh, people want to live in, in Los Angeles or San Francisco, despite the issues, the social issues. No, if you're making content and there's and there's bidding between uh, Netflix and Jeff Bezos, who has an unlimited balance sheet, and M- and Apple, which has basically an unlimited balance sheet, that's a pretty it's a pretty good spot to be in. So <laughs> it's a pretty good. And a friend, a couple of my friends over there doing that, were kind of chuckling. They said just that, not a bad place to be right now. We'll pay the taxes. We're making money, and and so uh, you know. But again, it's fun to watch the we, you and I both you know New York fans. It's it's fun to see the city come back. It's nice to see it. You know, rentals are coming back and home price are, it's nice to see new york resurrect for me it's very exciting to watch I, I feel uh very happy about new york where it's going well great ceo of las vegas sands rob goldstein thanks very much for joining great to do it thank you and uh, be safe hope to see you soon if you've enjoyed the conversation leave a review and subscribe to deviate to win to be alerted to future episodes jason's book deviate to win insights from a turnaround investor can be found on Amazon.